The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went out of the place to which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and will, and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Check, check. Check, check. We're good. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sacred City Church. Uh, my name is Alec Epkus. I am not a pastor here. Um, our pastor, Justin Dean, is en route to the Quad Cities right now. I don't know exactly where he's at, but I think he'll catch this at the tail end. Um, but at any rate, I'm excited to be here. I am a part of a missional community that's on mission right here to this Annie Wittenmeyer campus. Uh, we are on mission here throughout the week and then gather here on Sunday, as well as with a host of missional community families to place ourselves underneath the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Um, 
So far, we've been in the book of Genesis, and we've been tracking through this Genesis series for some time now. We are in the 22nd chapter this morning. Um, We have been going through the book of Genesis exegetically. Okay, and so what that means is that we have been taking the book of Genesis and been going chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this book to try and discern and understand what God is wanting us to know and do in light of the book of Genesis. Uh, This this practice kind of stands in stark contrast to what we've done historically in the church, um, where we take secluded chapters or texts of scriptures that are kind of relevant to what's, to what's going on in the news that week. Um, but what we like to do, going through the book of Genesis chapter by chapter, is deal with the weightiness and the heaviness of some of the texts that we find in scripture. Um, sometimes what can happen is we can divert our congregation from these weighty texts and it can do an injustice to us in the long run. And uh, we believe that Scripture is a really weighty thing. We believe that Scripture is weighty and can deal with the weighty stuff that's going on in our lives. And uh, we find ourselves in a really weighty text yet this morning. Uh, If you've been coming for some time now, I've been wondering what this crazy image is on the screen. Uh, This is not a way that we have uh, invited people into our church or, you know, it's it's a welcoming image. This is this is from the book of Genesis and specifically it's the the book, the chapter that we'll be reading this morning. Um, We're going to be talking about in chapter 22, the story between Abraham and his son Isaac and what God is calling Abraham to do. And so let me ask you this. Let me leave you with this question. Imagine if a freelance photographer was waltzing through a park one day, today, and peered through some trees, and through those trees saw a father standing above his child, who the child was laid out on a picnic table, and this dad had a knife above his child. And and let's just say that he had enough time to take a camera out and take some pictures of it and then of course he had enough time to go in and stop it but but let's say that these pictures were published to news channels and news stands throughout america what do you think that the response of common culture would be i would imagine that we would be saying that this father is a dreadful and terrible man that to a certain extent he's insane that he's deranged As Justin would say, and we've been saying throughout this series, serious, serious dad fail, right? And the poor child, the precious child whose life was in danger. But in Scripture this morning, this horrific image is brought out by a holy and righteous God who commands this of his servant Abraham. And that should floor us. That God is calling him and is asking him to do this. Abraham had been waiting and anticipating the birth of this child, this child that we will call Isaac, for 25 years. The boy who the seed of Abraham was to pass through, God made a promise to him earlier in the book of Genesis that we talked about and that we read about. God made a promise to him. And right now, we're going to see that God commands something of his servant Abraham that is at complete and utter tension with the initial promise that he made. And so... As a recipient of that, what is Abraham to do? God is asking Abraham to put the most precious thing in his life in the most dangerous and life-threatening situation. And that's where we find ourselves. 
Historically, the infatuation with this story has revolved around the horror of a seeming request to sacrifice a small baby boy. However, if we hone in on Isaac this morning and the physical danger that he is in, we can comfortably say that we have missed it completely. Because this story is not about the physical danger of the son, but the spiritual danger of Abraham, Abraham the father, if he were to not obey God and trust in him. Will you please pray with me? God of grace um, and power and strength, we entrust this text to you this morning because we know that you alone work in the hearts of men and bring about change and allow us to trust in you and put our faith in you. I understand that my words are little and my effect is even smaller, but we ask that through this text, through this rough and weighty text that we're going to read this morning in Genesis, that you would work and that you would stir our hearts to see you in a new way and to see and honor Jesus and what he has done for us in a new way. That is our prayer this morning. Um, I ask that you would speak through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. I pray that I would articulate your word clearly, that this image would, de- would be displayed visibly, and that you would get the glory and the fame and the honor this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. So let's start in Genesis 22, in verse 1, verses 1 through 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We'll stop there. I had to get my water, because I tell you what, it get, you just get so, so thirsty up here. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the elevation. But, but at any rate, <clears throat> so in, in, in verse 1, we immediately see that Moses calls this a test of God. This is something that's divulged or disclosed to us, being the readers and hearers, but this isn't something that God is communicating to Abraham specifically. So... That's something important for us to know. Then we see that God calls to him saying, Abraham, and he responds by saying, here am I. Um, There is something really unique about this phrase, here am I. Back in the day when this was written, uh, the phrase here am I was used between people related by intimacy and trust. Okay, So immediately we see God call Abraham. And he responds by saying, here am I. He responds to God from a posture of reverence. We hear him, he, he, he hears God, recognizes who he is, and immediately trusts him. And this is important to note, because this posture that Abraham has here from the get-go is going to set the pace for how he responds to God and heeds God's words later on in this story. Okay? So, then God says, take your son... Your only son, Isaac. Why does he say that? He says, your only son, Isaac. It was just a couple chapters ago that we were reading about the story of Ishmael and uh, how he was born from Abraham, that he was, Abraham was his father. But that, then we see in this piece of scripture that Moses says that Isaac is his only son. The reference here to Isaac is designed to be covenantal. 
Okay? So, in verse 2, when he says this to, to Abraham, it's designed to be covenantal. He did have another son, Ishmael, but if we remember, Ishmael's already out of the story. He's kind of already out of the scene. And God is appealing to the covenant that he made with Abraham. And that was going to be passing through his son, Isaac. And that's who will one day, the seed, will come through that come through that line. This is not a textual discrepancy on Moses' part. He didn't forget about Ishmael, nor did God forget about the fact that he brought forth Ishmael in Abraham's line as well. This is simply in reference to the covenant, okay? And on this note, Scripture isn't designed to be exhaustively descriptive. Um, Genesis 1, what we read earlier in this series, isn't designed to be a scientific textbook, In Scripture, we see that God communicates Himself to us in a way that we can trust Him, honor Him, and worship Him. Okay? Um, Let me see where I'm at here. Um, So, in verse 2, we see that God calls Abraham to go. And if you remember the Genesis series, He calls him to go again. In Genesis 11, he called Abraham to go to the place that I will tell you. And and Moses is using the same kind of language here in Genesis 22. This is not unfamiliar to Abraham, this language that's being used. God has done this before. In the past, God called him to leave his family, status, possessions, and country before. And now he is calling him to offer his son, his only son. Not only is he calling him out of a place of comfortability and familiarity, when he tells him where he's going to be going, he says that he's going to be going to the place that he should tell him. (laughs) So you can't get less descriptive than that. He says that he will reveal it to him later on. When he's calling Abraham out of this place of comfortability and familiarity, we're going to start to see that this is just something that God does in Scripture, history, and still in our lives today. He doesn't tell him where he's going, and we can be, we can be confident, we can be confident that the call of God is the exact same thing today. It's going to be calling us out of a place of comfortability and familiarity into a place that we don't know that requires people to have faith in him, and that's what he's in the business of doing. Weaning them off of the perceived faith that we have in ourselves so that we can trust and depend on him. And that's what he's doing in Abraham's life right here. And here's the thing. Here's what God is wanting to do with this entire text. We immediately see that this is a test of Abraham, so that kind of gives us an idea of what this entire entire chapter is going to be about. God wants to see if he's the God in Abraham's life. That's what he's doing. Tim Keller, a theologian, pastor, and really smart guy, says that everyone has a God, it's just a matter of what it is. There is something or someone that is profoundly important to you. And he says that if you don't know what it is, if you don't know what this God is in your life, he says that this is how you know. He says that God is the non-negotiable thing in your life. What is the non-negotiable thing in your life? Whatever that is, you identify that, and that's what your God is. That's what he says. He says that we might not carry all around this religious title and want some kind of religious fame, but he says that in this sense, we are all religious. As I was reading this, that absolutely floored me. 
And whatever that is in your life, it will get to a point where God will call you to offer it to himself, undoubtedly. And uh, if you don't want to offer it to God, don't be in a missional community. Because <laughs> that is the spot, the platform by which God will take his chisel out and start to form you into a disciple. Just like he is here in Abraham. I can promise you that. Okay? So, uh, as we continue, Abraham, God says to Abraham, go to the land of Moriah. Okay, so we know uh, after theologians have kind of dissected this text, the land of Moriah is modern-day Jerusalem. Okay, Um, so it's not explicitly said here, but they say that this is the area of Jerusalem. And he says, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Jerusalem is about a 45 to 50 mile trip from where he's at right now. God is calling him to go to the land of Jerusalem, go on a journey, and take his son to the top of a mountain and offer him there as a sacrifice. We've got to understand, if we've been coming for a while, we, we, we get a piece of this, but we have to understand what was just asked of Abraham in verse 2. Abraham and Sarah, his wife had been waiting and anticipating the birth of this child for 25 years. It, it had probably been a centerpiece of their marriage for, for many, 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 many years. It was probably the source of many conflicts. Well, actually it was. We know that from earlier. It was the source of many conflicts and conversations. And then finally this child was born. Right? Finally this child was born. And Abraham walked closely with his son. He potty trained him. Brought him up in the ways of the household, instructed him. And right now we believe that Isaac is about 13 to 17 years of age. About a decade has passed since Genesis 21. Okay, so Isaac is a a young teenager at this point. So God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to offer your son Isaac. The son that he has brought up in his own household, instructed and walked with for about 15 years. Like I said, Scripture is not exhaustively descriptive. It doesn't tell us how Abraham wrestled through this emotionally, how it kept him up at night, how he was torn between what God had told him in the past of Isaac and his line. It doesn't. It just says that he woke up the next morning and uh, started on the journey. In this text, God is asking Abraham to behave in a way that is illogical, absurd, and to say the least, non-conventional from the human perspective. God seemingly asks him to do something that stifles the initial promise that God gave him. And God is now calling in his debt through a command to Abraham. So immediately in this text, we we are introduced to this friction. Just a couple chapters ago, God made this overwhelming and beautiful promise of grace to Abraham. And now in this text, we see this commandment of God that requires Abraham to obey. This commandment of justice, of God calling in his debt, asking for Abraham to offer up his firstborn. This, what is Abraham to do? But what is Abraham to do with this? And it's the same God that's making this request. This isn't isn't good cop, bad cop, mom on this side and dad on this side. This is the same God that is requiring these things of Abraham. This is amazing. 
And on our end, it brings up an important question. Do we have to understand before we obey? We don't see Abraham wrestling through questions with God. We don't see him putting God on trial. It just says that he heard what God said, trusted him, and made his plans accordingly and did it. Do we have to understand before we obey? Do we expect our kids to have to understand the intricacies of our request when we're telling them to not place their hand on the stove? I would hope not. And do we have to appeal to our kids why going out into the street is a really bad deal for them when they're in the middle of the street? Do we have to walk through that with them in that moment? No, we expect. If we tell them to come out from the street because that's a dangerous place, we expect them to do that. And that's what we see here in this text. And in missional community, does a leader have to go beyond the bounds of Scripture to describe why sex outside of marriage is not delightful to God? The truth is, if we, if we have to understand why what is being asked of us is being asked of us, it requires absolutely no faith at all. Absolutely no faith. And you know what? It is often easy to go through the motions of life and do what's right and be a good person, but we see here in this text that faith demands radical obedience. Faith demands radical obedience. A really nice moral person would not be able to do what God is asking of Abraham here. They wouldn't be able to do it. They would not be able to do it because it conflicts with societal norms, first of all, and probably on the peripheral. But it also conflicts with the most precious thing in their life. There are no accolades here for doing this on top of a mountain by yourself alone in a place that you don't know. There are no there's no accolades. And there would be no perceived rewards. And you know what? I don't even know if even a really immoral person could do what Abraham is about to do here. God is calling him to offer his son not commit murder. There's a, there's a huge difference in scripture. If, 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 you're just, if, if God was calling him to murder him, that would require no emotional connection on Abraham's part. All, I mean, we know if we've researched you know, serial killers and things like that, all they have to do is objectify, dehumanize, and commit the act. But he is asking him to offer his son as a sacrifice. And when God uses that language with Abraham, he understands what that means. To offer sacrifice is a deeply intimate and profoundly personal experience with God. He's asking him to look his son in the face and commit one of the most unbelievable acts that you could ask a father to do. And I think that only a person of faith could even be walking up that mountain, going beyond what God asked of him. Continue to read on in starting in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. <clears throat> so we see here that the bargainer of previous chapters falls silent. Abraham drops the debates with God. We don't hear negotiations between him and God, just movement, hurrying, saddling, taking, splitting, asking, and going. 
He is not taking his time here. Obeying God right now in this text is of the chief importance to Abraham. And we see in this text that faith is what is fueling Abraham's obedience. Right? Walking with God, trusting him, walking intimately with him, that faith is what allows someone to heed his words and to obey him. And that's what we see here. And after God asks this of Abraham, we see how he responds. He sees God as someone who is trustworthy. He sees God as someone who is trustworthy. In MC, sometimes our missional community asks us to do things that don't necessarily delight us. And so we respond out of drudgery. But if we are perceiving our missional community as a place of trust, as a place of love, we would be able to heed their words. But sometimes it can be really tough, and we just look at them like a bunch of tyrants and lawgivers. (laughs) So goes the same if our parents are giving us discipline. We just want to go through the motions because they seem old, irrelevant, and most likely not cool. Because the thing is that distrust breeds distance and relationships and darkness in the heart. And that is what God is wanting to examine in Abraham's life. Abraham believes in God, but does he trust God? Or does he trust someone else? A heart changed by the grace of God trusts in and depends on God. Because we see God for who he is. I think something that I was wrestling through while I was studying this and that I saw is that obedience has, obedience has a posture and that posture is trust. I remember when I was growing up, my dad would, um, after, after numerous, numerous requests for me to clean my room, he would just sit down, have a frank conversation, look at a bro in the face and say, dude, you're grounded for a couple days. And, uh, basically the way that I would heed that is I would go into my room and I would clean my room. I would throw stuff in my closet underneath my bed. That's, that's what I did to clean. And my dad would hear that and he would come into my room and confront me in it because he knew that I was not trusting him. He knew that I wasn't heeding his words and that I believed that what he was saying to me had my best interests in mind. And that's what God wants again to test or to see in the life of Abraham here. Okay, so to go back to the story. Like I said, he's, tr- he's traveled about 45 to 50 miles. And back in that day, a good day's trip was about a 15 to 20 mile walk. That's, that's how people traveled from city to city. So about three miles is three really packed days of walking. Okay. And so it says that he, he lifted his face up, saw it from afar. He's gotten to Jerusalem and see where he, and sees where he's supposed to go. So in verse five, it says, then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Um, These young men that are with Abraham and Isaac, we don't know who they are. (laughs) Moses doesn't tell us who they are, and we we never really see him again in Scripture. So uh, that's, you know, that's kind of weird. But what it does for us as the readers is that it heightens our sense of Abraham's isolation with his son, with his, in, with his intimacy with his son. Okay, so these young dudes are staying with the donkeys. They're staying with Abraham's personal items as Abraham begins this journey with his son up this mountain. Okay. 
in this text, and we're going to start to see it building, we're going to start to see the intimacy between Abraham and his son Isaac starting to build. We see that Moses, the writer of this book, starts to appeal to the father and son imagery in the text. He continues to appeal to how Abraham loves his son and cherishes his son. And we begin to see that this is a really intimate thing that's about to happen on top of this mountain. That this would be unbelievably hard for a father. And specifically Isaac. Or Abraham. But yet Abraham says to these young men, he says, we will come to you again. So even though God has called him on top of this mountain to offer his son, and he has no idea if whether or not he's going to be burying his own son tomorrow, he is saying to these young boys that we will be coming to you again. We will be leaving this mountain together. It's an amazing thing. He's, he's trusting in God and the promise that he initially made with him. <clears throat> so, at this point... In Genesis 22, we get the feeling that Moses starts to switch to a slow-motion camera as he recounts the stories within it. At the beginning of verse 1, within a couple verses, Abraham is called by God. He is called to gather his personal items. He goes to sleep, wakes up, prepares an altar, and then goes on a three-day trip where he travels 50 miles. He gets to the land of Mount Moriah. He does all those in five verses, and the rest of Genesis 22 is, to, is devoted to slowly unfolding this image that we're about to see going on top of this mountain. Moses wanted to be very detailed in how this looks to us as the readers. And Abraham took the word of word, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And I'll be honest with you, if I'm Isaac at this point, I'm asking the same question. <laughs> Yo, Dad, you said that you'd, we'd be picking up the lamb halfway when we got to Jerusalem. And we, then you changed your mind and said we'd get it when we got there. And then we got there, and you said we'd get it right before we got the, up the hill. And now we're climbing up the hill, and I'm starting to wonder if it's going to be me or you. <laughs> I, I, would be, I would be equally concerned. Seriously, though, like I said, about a decade has passed here between Genesis 21 and Genesis 22. And again, they say that Isaac is about 13 to 17 years of age. And as they walk up this hill, Abraham places the piece of wood on Isaac, his son, that he needs to ascend the hill with. The wood for the sacrifice that he doesn't even know yet is intended for him. And his father, Abraham, carries the knife and the fire that is going to be for his son. His as they walk up this hill, his father Abraham holds in his hands the only thing that could cause harm or destruction to his son. This is so intimate. And hear this again. Here's what, hear, hear what's being said here. And he said, he, he said, here am I... Wait a second. Oh, so they went both of them together. 
And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. Do you remember what I said earlier about that, about the here am I language? We see it here, Abraham using it with his son. He says, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Do you hear the fact that they related it together? (laughs) Moses continues to use that language to drive home the intimacy here, to drive home the fact that these two were intimately connected. And as they're walking up this hill far away from home, I cannot imagine what these three days have been like for Abraham. He's probably lost sleep. He's accompanied by his son going up this hill. And every single time he hears his son talk or looks at him, I'm sure he just is brought to tears because he knows what's going to be waiting for him on top of this hill with his son. Could Could you imagine? Have you ever had to be put in the place where you've had to anticipate the potential coming death of a family member? I mean, this, this son is 13 to 17 years of age, and he is, he is called to do it by his own hand. And he's had to sit in this and think about it and wrestle through it for three days. Nothing to do but walk 15 to 20 miles a day for three days and think about this. And now he's alone with his son. He's walking up this hill. And all he has to do is think about what's going to be going on when he gets up there. What's amazing about this text, and then specifically in verse 8, we don't see Abraham walking up this hill saying, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it. I will be doing this and getting this done, what God has asked of me. Though the focus of this story historically has been on Abraham's obedience, that does not mean he takes control and is the one that gets it done, and it is in his hands. We see the exact opposite being said here. God will provide, he says to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He is saying, I have not got a clue what's going to be going on on top of that mountain. I have not got a clue how this is going to be working out, but I entrust this to God. I know that he will handle this and take care of this. And the truth is, and it's true for all of us, we could never do what Abraham is about to do if we just tried really hard. We wouldn't make it up the mountain. We wouldn't make it on the trip to Jerusalem. You can't because it requires faith in something outside of ourselves. And again, that is something that God is wanting to see and and, and test in the life of Abraham here. Moses continues with this pace. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So at this point, Isaac's got to know something's going on. (laughs) The gig's up. He's bound onto it. Then Abraham reached his hand out and took the knife to slaughter his son. We've got to understand here again that it's not just the emotional connection that he has between his son. This is a thing of societal uh, 
uh, I mean, Abraham, Abraham's legacy was determined by his children that he would have. That's the way that it was back in the day. So his legacy would be realized through his son Isaac here. This was to totally throw out all the societal norms back in this day. Okay? And again, the tension between what God has promised him and the commandment of justice that God has put in front of put in Abraham's lap at this point. This is the gateway to God's chosen line. He says that Israel, the nation, is going to be redeemed through this, through this seed, that they're going to experience restoration, reconciliation with God, and they're going to be given a specific land. And Abraham knows this, and he literally is dangling a knife above this entire legacy, above this entire line that God has promised him. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So after three long days of exhaustion, he has finally built this altar on top of this mountain. And this knife is dangling over his son. His son who has got blood pulsing through his body and he's breathing his own breath. He's holding this knife above his son. And then, then God comes to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. And I'm, I'm sure that Abraham steps back in a daze and looks up and behind him he sees a ram caught in a thicket. That's, that's random. That's random. Because if, if, if I was freaking out like Abraham, I'd be looking around any, everywhere for something else to sacrifice. But we see that a ram caught in a thicket. And Isaac takes this ram, unties his son, he takes this lamb, and he, and he places this ram on top, of the off, on top of the altar. And he sacrifices it. And this image in Genesis 22 is for the first time in Scripture, the image of a substitutionary sacrifice. Something being substituted to save the life for something else. Isaac's life is spared in this chapter. But it still brings up an interesting question for us. Does God condone human sacrifice? This is a really famous text for Christians, uh, people of the Jewish culture. In antiquity, it is a, a story that's just been written about in many books. Does God condone human sacrifice? And the answer is that yes, he does. He does, but it would only be a one-time gig. The parallels between this story and Jesus' migration towards the cross is overwhelming. Abraham rode in on a donkey about a 45 to 50 mile trip to Jerusalem, as did Jesus. Abraham is isolated from friends during this lonely journey, just like Jesus. The son has a bar of wood placed on his back as he ascends to the, the hill to his seeming destru destruction as does Jesus. But in this story, Isaac's life is spared 
unlike Jesus. Abraham looks pretty swag in this chapter. He's got some pretty intense faith for Jesus, right? However, I think if he was with us today, he would not be saying the same thing. You flip back just a couple chapters, and he gets found out pretty quick. Really, anyone can be the superhero for a chapter or two of their story until someone does a bit more research. Though we are terribly scared of being found out, it really doesn't take much. We see in this story that sin is in Abraham's bones when we see it in the chapters before and we learn as the recipients that it's in our bones too, that this is not a Genesis issue. This is a human issue. And it isn't judged on a couple chapters of your life. It's judged upon the entire thing. And the fact is that in the gospel, we all deserve to be laid upon that wood and bound to it. And in the coolness of that day in Jerusalem, on top of that mountain, we deserve to have that knife dangling above us. But right before the knife penetrated our chest, we heard God say, wait, wait. And he unbound us ushered us off of the altar and ushered his very own son onto the altar. And Jesus took that knife in his own chest for us. He took the knife for us. He took it for Abraham in this story. And he took it for his very own son, Isaac. And in this story, Isaac is able to walk away because of what Jesus would one day do. And we are the same way. We need a substitute. And God says that Jesus is the only remedy. Earlier I asked, what is Abraham to do? What's a guy to do when God comes to him, gives him a promise of grace, and also gives him a commandment of justice that conflict completely, that are at complete tension with each other? And the truth is, and the answer is, that God would deal with this tension on the cross through his son. That in Jesus... A theologian says that on the cross, justice and mercy kisses. Because in Jesus, we see the sin of the world entrusted to him, placed on his back, and he dies for it. But we can still look at that exact same image. Just like the horror of Genesis 22, we can look at that horrific image, but yet erupt in grace because it's at that image that we can say as a people that we have been forgiven and loved and accepted and brought into a family, an eternal family, where our sins have been forgiven because of what Jesus has done. Genesis 22 continues to say, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, My, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. The thing that was endangered in this story was Abraham's relationship with God, not Isaac's physical body. As I said earlier, Abraham is no superhero here. He's a product of the grace of God. How God uses weak and vulnerable vessels 
so that he can walk with them, call them, walk with them, and eventually they might be able to trust in him after he imparts faith to them. That's what this story is about. God has taught him that trusting in himself is better than trusting his own judgment. And if you've been here for a while, you certainly get that. And God is the one that gives faith. We see that in Scripture. God has slowly weaned Abraham off of trusting in everything else. Because everything else is vanity. And has shown him that trusting in God is the only stability to his life. The only stability to his own existence. And as I wrap up this morning, I want to leave you with this. In verse 12, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham in verse 12, he says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The most amazing thing is that we now get to stand <laughs> at the foot of that hill in Jerusalem and gaze up upon it. And kind of turn this verse around and say it. Because you laid your hand on that boy, your very own son, now I know how much you love me. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. We get to say that now when we stand on the other side of the cross. On the other side of what Jesus has done. Would you please pray with me? Father, it is because... You have been gracious to us that we can turn in a horrific image that we see in Scripture. How you can use a horrific image and redeem it to make something so terrible, beautiful to us as we hear it. The truth that Jesus took the knife for us on that day, on that hill in Jerusalem, is news that we will rejoice about forever. And God, because that has been done for us, because the, that amount of love has been lavished on us, we can rejoice and we can rest because it isn't something that we need to earn. It isn't something that we need to gain on our own part. You have achieved it and done it for us. We don't need to walk up the hill and say, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, like Abraham didn't. But we can say that God will provide. God, may that be our hope. May that be a truth to us this morning. That no matter what hill we're seemingly walking up, that we can meet it by saying that God will provide. Oh, in this moment, practically, He can provide, but ultimately He provided for me in His Son on the cross because of what Jesus did. God, that's an amazing truth that You've given us. God, I pray that we would... Believe it, put our faith in it, and God, we pray that we would just be changed by it. That's our prayer. Amen.